to you are God, and there is none like you. We praise you, Father, for giving us your word and for giving men and women who know how to write the kind of music that we have, the kind of lyrics that we have just sung. You've commanded us to sing a new song, and we have sung this morning the praises of our God and some of the rich theology of the gospel that reminds us that all we have is Christ, for all we need is Christ. And, oh, Father, we believe that, and it has changed our lives. And we want to be holy and blameless before you, and we want to be ruled by your word. And so we come again and again on Sunday mornings to study your word together, asking you to send your spirit who indwells us to quicken us, quicken our minds that we might know how to apply the truth explained to our own souls and be changed by it. So we pray, Father, that none of us would leave here unchanged. Where salvation is needed, Father, I pray that it would be granted by your grace and for your glory. Where repentance or encouragement or exhortation or whatever is needed this morning, Father, I pray that not a single word would be wasted. And all of it, Father, we pray for your glory and the glory of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen. 1 Corinthians chapter 6 this morning. There's never been a period of time in all of redemptive history where sexual sin has not been a significant problem. We see it as far back as Genesis in the lives of Abraham and in Jacob. It complicated the lives of Judah and Tamar. It nearly destroyed the entire nation of Israel more than once. And even King David, for all the glory and honor that was bestowed upon him with his gifts, his intelligence, his bravery, his heroic acts on the battlefield and faithfulness to the Lord, even he has taken the bait of sexual sin. And it almost destroyed him, cost the life of his son and shame. Even in the church, this church, the elders have from time to time had to deal with the heartbreaking news of a wife who's been unfaithful to her husband or a husband who's been unfaithful to her wife. And that whole process of discipline, church discipline, is so agonizing. Even now, I As I was writing this this week, it caused me to tremble, to think, and to remember the turmoil and the heartbreak that followed every one of those situations and how difficult it was, how wonderful to see some of those couples reconcile and others not, and it broke our hearts. And so this is an age-old problem. It was a very real and relevant problem in the lives of some who were members of the ancient church of Corinth. And I confess to you that as I approach this text this morning, I approach it as one who uh, really comes at it more out of a sense of duty than delight. This is not a topic that I'm comfortable speaking about, and I'm sure it's not one that you're comfortable hearing about. In fact, uh, these are the occasions when I wish I had chosen not to be an expository preacher. I could skip this passage, and nobody would know any different. But as we take the word of God verse by verse, chapter by chapter, I mean, that's the whole point, right? We don't want to miss anything that God wants to say to his people. 
And so we're not selective. We try to be very comprehensive in explaining and reading and applying what God has said. And that's the case here, though it's perhaps a little uncomfortable. Nevertheless, it is the word of God, and he intended for us to hear and obey, especially on issues like this, and it has fallen to me to preach it. But before I do, I think it would be wise for us to stand and read it, as we always do from Sunday to Sunday, reading our text. And so out of honor for the Lord and his word, let's stand together and read this text. It's 1 Corinthians 6. We're going to begin with verse 12 and finish out the chapter. And uh, if the Lord is gracious and I have enough time, then we will finish this chapter. And then next week, we will start in on the questions of uh, marriage, divorce, and remarriage. And that's going to be a very instructive um, several weeks in chapter 7. But here we go in 1 Corinthians chapter 6. If you have the New American Standard Bible or you're using the Pew Bible, you can feel free to read out loud with me. Here we go, verse 12. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Food is for the stomach, and the stomach is for food. But God will do away with both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? May it never be. Or do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one body with her? For he says, they too shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself to the Lord is one spirit with him. Flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who indwells you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word, and you can be seated. Now, I give you my word, I will make every attempt to be appropriately delicate with these issues as we walk through them. But I think there are a few things that the Apostle Paul wants us to understand here. And the first is this. Sexual sin is enslaving. And he's giving us a warning. I hope a warning and not correction. And maybe it's correction in the way some think, but I I trust not. In the case of the church of Corinth, however, there were some who were actually practicing it. They were bringing in these ideas from the world right into the church. And we've seen that all the way since chapter 1. They brought their philosophies into the world. They brought their, their tendency toward division into the world. They brought their immorality in the world. And, and we talked about that whole case in chapter 5. Or the issue what really wasn't the fact that they were that a man was sleeping with his father's wife and committing immorality. The real issue there was that the leaders of the church were not handling it. They were not practicing church discipline, and we spent three or four weeks on that. And then there was the issue of lawsuits. They were a lawsuit-happy um, culture, and, and the people who would come into the church just brought that with them, and they were suing one another. 
And now Paul goes back to the, to the issue of immorality. But the issue here really is the immorality and not, as we saw earlier, the fact that the leaders weren't dealing with it. Now he's tackling the immorality issue head on. And there were folks in the body, including that one brother, who were committing immorality and it was being boasted about. And so Paul is trying to correct that. He's trying to correct the kind of thinking that leads people to believe that that's okay for them to do as Christians. And so in verse 12, he says, this this is what he's teaching. He's teaching that sexual sin is enslaving. And verse 12, he says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. Now, understand There are many applications of this verse that are perfectly legitimate for the Christian life, and you have often, if you've been a Christian for any time and gone to church for any time, have seen this verse lifted from its context and used to apply to many things. And a lot of times I will tell you that's totally inappropriate, they missed the point of the text. But actually, this verse is normally used in a way that is consistent with the context in its application. And and it really does apply to a number of areas relative to uh, the Christian life, to living in general. It speaks to the issue of eating and obesity. It speaks to the issue of drinking and smoking. It speaks to the issue of gambling and computer gaming and internet surfing and TV watching. Um, Almost anything in life can become enslaving if we like it enough if we spend enough time with it, and if we're willing to do it, even though we know it displeases the Lord. In counseling, uh, this is not uncommon at all to find someone who is enslaved to something that uh, we would never expect a person to be enslaved to. But it happens. You don't need a chemical addiction to be, quote, addicted to someone, uh, to to something or someone. Um, you can just give your life over it. And the biblical term is not addiction, as if it were a disease. The biblical term is enslavement. It's a life-dominating sin. You can be dominated by anything. Your work can dominate you. Your marriage can dominate you. Your commitment to your children can be excessively dominating your thinking. And your money can dominate you. Your Um, Your 401k and your retirement plan or your job can dominate your life and control you. But here he's speaking specifically about immorality. And Paul is not speaking about any of these other issues in this context. He was speaking specifically about slavery to sexual sin of any kind and any variety. Now, apparently, the Corinthians had seized seized upon Paul's teaching about freedom in Christ, Christian liberty, right? We all love the doctrine of Christian liberty. We love the freedom texts. And here are a few from the Apostle Paul, uh, Romans 6, 14. Here's a common one. Uh, You are not under the law, but under what? Grace. Now, we love that, don't we? Now, let me say it again, and you fill in the blank. Blank. I don't know what it is about the second service. i got to teach you to speak back to me. Here we go. We are not under law, but under grace. grace. That's better. Good. And how about this one, Ephesians 2, 8, 9? We could probably quote this together. For it is by grace that you were saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest any man should boast. And so salvation is a work of grace. And, and then finally, 
uh, Romans 7, 6. And this is just a sampling, but this is another good one. But now we have been released from the law. Wow, that's a powerful statement. We've been released from the law, having died to that which, to which we were bound, so that we serve in newness of the spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. But here's the problem. The Corinthians seized upon these teachings, and they kind of diced it up and threw away what they didn't like, kind of like I do with salad. You know, you find the tomatoes and pitch them over onto your wife's plate. Um, there were aspects of this teaching that they didn't like. But they kept the part that they did like, the dominant part that says, the law is out and grace is in. We're not bound by the old letter. Now we're bound by grace, which has freed us, so we're not bound at all. We can live as we please. The leaders at Corinth were twisting Paul's doctrine, and they were doing it to justify their sin. After all, since we are covered by grace and since we are no longer under law, we have theological justification for sinning. Because really, since we are covered by grace, our sin is no longer sinful in Christ. And that is a twist that the Word of God does not allow. Paul never intended for these truths to justify sin. He wasn't saying that we are free to live as we please. He was saying that we are free from bondage to works righteousness. You don't have to live under that that bondage of, uh, of trying to measure up to the old standard. And some of the old standard still applies. The moral law still applies. But the ceremonial law and all of its Sabbath days and new moons and festivals and all of the additional requirements that were thrown on. And then the Pharisees came along and they added more to it. And it became this huge burden on the life of the believers in the New Testament. That's why Jesus said, come to me, all of you who are weary and are heavy laden, and I will give you what? Rest. That was good. That was, you're getting better at this. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly at heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is... What was he talking about? He was talking about Jesus referring to himself, I have come to liberate you from that old ceremonial law. Because it could never save you. Not even the Ten Commandments, which was not part of the ceremony. It was part of the moral law. Not even the Ten Commandments could save anyone. Nobody gets saved by keeping law. And God did not save us to make us better law keepers. He saved us to make us Christ worshipers. But here's the problem. We have a totally wrong view of worship. We think worship is something that we just did. The singing. Maybe if you were praying along with me, the praying. And right now, it's kind of nappy time. I'm the only one getting any exercise, right? <laughs> now it's the preaching of the word. We just check out. Worship is over. We had the worship block, and now we have the sermon. And then we'll sing another song, and that'll be good. And, that'll be, and then we'll head to lunch, and that'll be great. Um, but we're not worshiping anymore. That's a totally wrong view of worship. If your worship is all about externalism, 
It's about singing the songs and quoting the scriptures and standing up on time and sitting down on time. Then you don't understand. That is not righteousness. And if you choose not to go to the movies and not to drink certain kind of drinks and uh, not to eat certain kinds of food and whatever it is, all of this externalism, and if you're doing that and thinking that is worship, then you have another thing coming. You don't understand. You know what worship is? It's simply this. In every decision, in every aspect of my life, I choose to do things in order to proclaim Christ is worthy. I mean, am I going to go see this movie with my friends? I know it's probably, I mean, the commercials in front of it alone are going to distract my soul away from Christ. Or am I going to say, no, Lord, I really want to go, but you're worth it. I'd rather have fellowship with you than anything entertainment can offer or doing whatever it is with my friends or eating too much or whatever it is that entices us, clicking places on the internet where we ought not go. We live in such a way that says, Jesus, you are worth it. I choose to take up my cross right now and follow you, denying myself so that I can have all the things that you, that God has provided for me through Jesus Christ. That's worship. And then when we come together, it's just a celebration of that. Living imperfectly by grace and praise God for, um, uh, 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 for forgiveness talking to a brother this morning, we were talking about, he just learned the principles of transactional forgiveness. And he was, it, it, it's like it totally transformed his life and his marriage. Yes, a thousand times yes, we're still going to sin, but God by his grace has freed us from the condemnation of the law because of Christ's work of redemption. We're no longer under, that is enslaved to, carrying around the burden of trying to measure up to that law so that we can earn righteousness. That's our freedom. And now we have the freedom to say no to sin. Now we have the freedom to say no to the lust of the flesh. And now we have the freedom to say yes to worship and yes to fellowship. And you know what? A lot of the pleasures of life, perfectly lawful and can be glorifying to God. Paul simply says, whether you eat or drink, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus. You know what? That's why we give thanks before we eat. Now, a ton of you have bought uh, uh, lunch uh, for, for part of the mission uh, Korea fundraiser, and you're going to be grabbing that food afterwards. And you know what you need to do? You need to take that, that old uh, uh, barbecue beef sandwich and hold it up to God and say, God, I'm going to eat this and enjoy it because you're worth it. I'm going to love every bite of this, but I'm not going to eat too much because you're worth it. That's what God has given us freedom to do and to live in the joy of that we don't have to earn our salvation anymore. We don't have to hope that we have been obedient enough to win God's favor. Rather, all the demands of God's law have been fulfilled where? On the cross by Christ. 
so that we are free to live before God as those who have been declared righteous in his sight through Christ. And so our liberty in Christ is tempered by the rest of the Bible. It doesn't mean we have the liberty to sin. In fact, that's the part that the Corinthians had cut off. And let me show that to you. Romans 6, Paul asks this rhetorical question. What then? Shall we continue to sin so that grace may increase? And his answer in the Greek is meganoita. It's the strongest negative in the Greek. May it never be. Uh, somebody asked me one time, do I eat Brussels sprouts? And I said, meganoita. <laughs> May it never be. Galatians 5.13 is another great text for this. For you were called to freedom, brethren, only, listen to this, only do not use your freedom, uh, do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the what? The flesh, but through love, serve one another. Through love, serve one another. You know how we serve one another? Especially in the first century context, it was like this. I grew up in a Jewish home, and pork, that was just not allowed. But now Christ has come, he's been raised, and through Peter and through Paul, we've, we've discovered that, that that regulation no longer binds us. We can eat whatever is set before us. And I still, I still don't like eating pork. It still bugs me when I eat pork a little bit. But if I go to your house and you serve me pork, you know what I'm not going to do? I'm not going to say, what is that? Why did you put that on my plate? That offends me. Rather, I'm going to say, thank you. And let's give thanks to God for this food. That's freedom. That's freedom. The problem was some people were using that freedom, the theological concept of that freedom, and they were giving it a little twist like we tend to do, taking a verse and pulling it out of its context and giving it a little twist. And then we say, see, everything is lawful. So Paul's saying, yes, all things are lawful, in the sense that I am no longer restricted by the ceremonial regulations of the Old Testament system. But that doesn't mean that everything is, what's the next word in your text? Profitable. Not all things are profitable. Not everything is going to benefit. In other words, even in our freedom, there are obvious and important boundaries that we need to keep in place. Our freedoms have boundaries. Even in America, I mean, we're a free people. We love our freedom. Um, but one of the axioms of American culture is your freedom to swing your arms stops at the end of my nose. Um, I have the freedom to protect myself. And you have boundaries to your freedom. We believe in private property. Your freedom to go, you have freedom to go anywhere you want. But if it's posted, private property... You're not allowed to cross that fence. And that's the way it is in life. You're riding down the road and you see that yellow line in the middle of the road. You have freedom to drive. You have freedom to go wherever you please, except you cross that line into incoming traffic, you're going to die. That's not freedom. Two men jump out of an airplane. One man's wearing a parachute. The other one is not. Which one is truly free? The one with the chute. You almost had me say the one without the chute. I heard that. Listen, 
The one with the parachute has the freedom to stop before he hits the ground. And the other one's going to die. There have to be limits to freedom. There have to be in order for us to be truly free. And that's all Paul taught. And that's what the Corinthians were missing out on. And it was destroying them. It was destroying them. And let's be clear here. Paul is dealing, he's touching on Christian liberty here. He's going to deal with it more thoroughly later. He's just touching on it here. But understand what he's not saying. He's not saying that your issues with immorality fall within the realm of Christian liberty in terms of our debating whether it's okay to do or not. I mean, it's not, it's not the same kind of context as, is it okay to go to a movie theater? Okay, we can discuss that. We can bring the principles of Scripture to bear on that and make a decision. It's the right kind of movie you're going with, the right kind of friends. Is, there, is it going to cause a brother to stumble? Whatever. Is it... Is it, is it Is it biblical? Is it allowable biblically to drink a certain kind of drink? Well, okay, that's the whole issue of Christian liberty. What kind of food to eat? That's a Christian liberty issue. We can discuss that. We can bring principles to bear on it. When it comes to practicing immorality, this is not an issue of liberty. They had taken the theological concept of liberty and thrown it over here into something that is strictly forbidden. And it's strictly forbidden for good reason. Paul did not want us to be mastered by sin. And frankly, sexual sin is enslaving. Let's just take a few minutes. I want to show you this. And part of this, this is Proverbs chapter 5. Part of the reason I'm going here is to instruct you dads where to go. Um, and, And myself as a reminder of where to take my boys and girls for instruction on this area. Proverbs 5. I'm just going to read select sections here, but starting with verse 1. My son, give attention to my wisdom. Incline your ear to understanding that you may observe discretion and your lips may reserve knowledge. For the lips of an adulteress drip honey. It's true. And smoother than oil is her speech true, but the end, but in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. In other words, it's pretty poison. It's beautiful poison. Sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps take hold of Sheol, that's the grave. She does not ponder ponder the path of her life. Her ways are unstable, and she does not even know it. Now then, my son, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house or you will give your vigor to others and your years to the cruel one. And strangers will be filled with your strength and your hard-earned goods will go to the house of an alien. It's going to destroy you. And you will groan at the final end, and your flesh and your body will be consumed. Just think AIDS and all the other STDs. And you say, how have I hated instruction and my heart spurned reproof? I have not listened to the voice of my teachers, nor inclined my ear to my my instructors. 
I was almost in utter ruin in the midst of the assembly and the congregation. And oh, young people, I can't tell you how many times a young person in our church will come to me or to one of the elders or pastoral staff and say, I should have listened. I should have listened. And now I'm ruined. Is there forgiveness? Yes. Oh, praise God, yes, there is forgiveness. And I expect that there are a number of people hearing my voice right now who praise God. And whenever you sing the songs like we sang this morning, your heart just exalts as your eyes weep because you know how forgiven you are. But just because we're forgiven doesn't mean the consequences are washed away. The consequences sometimes are lasting, usually lasting. Sometimes they're external. Sometimes they have to do with your finances and your home and your children. Sometimes it's just the inward shame of it that you have to constantly battle and bring the blood and righteousness of Jesus Christ to bear again and again and again. But even that is a means of grace to us. Verse 20, For why should you, my son, be exhilarated with an adulteress and embrace the bosom of a foreigner? For the ways of a man are before the eyes of the Lord. In other words, the Lord sees, and he watches all his paths. His own iniquities will captivate the wicked, and he will be held by the cords of his own sin. Now look at verse 23. He will die for lack of instruction. The word instruction here could really better be translated self-discipline. He will die for lack of self-discipline. And in the greatness of his folly, he will go astray. He's talking about slavery to sexual sin. He's talking about being enslaved and destroyed by this life-dominating sin. And his warning is, don't even go there. And don't give me this rubbish about all things are lawful. Because not all things are profitable, even in the realm of Christian liberty. And there are some things that are downright destructive to you. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be mastered by anything. The word mastered here means to be brought under the power or authority of someone or something. And so Paul is saying this, all things are in my domain, yes, but I will not be dominated by anything. Or as Jonathan Edwards said it, all things are in my power, but I shall not be overpowered by anything. Is it within your realm as a Christian to use the internet? Well, sure it is. But don't let the internet overpower you and drag you into an area that's not about Christian liberty, but into things that are forbidden by God. The danger is that by exercising our liberty carelessly, I might put myself into bondage to the very thing that God hates. But the Corinthians had gone way beyond the boundaries of Christian liberty. They'd thrown themselves headlong into immorality. And, and now, um, Paul is having to give correction, trying to rescue this church from destruction. 
But it's important for us to remember here that to kind of give a little context for the Corinthians and why in the world this was happening in their church, we've got to understand this was, this was first century Christians. I mean, most of us had parents or someone in our family who knew the Lord were kind of second generation Christians or third or fourth or fifth. I mean, nobody in Corinth had ever heard the gospel before Paul showed up. It, it just had never been there. I mean, Jesus had only been raised for how many years? 20 years? 30 years? And the gospel had not gone out around the earth yet. And so it was new for them. And they left a wretched life behind, full of sexual immorality that was ex- not only acceptable, but expected in that culture. Because this was, this was ancient Greece. This was the time of the temples and, and the time of polytheism, where you had all of the different gods that you worshipped. And you remember that, and Paul went to Athens, and he went to to the Agropolis, and he was talking to the philosophers about the way, this gospel of Jesus Christ, and when he got to the resurrection, they didn't want to hear about it anymore. But he was trying to confront their gods, and he was trying to tell them about the one true God, and they rejected him. But when he came to Corinth, there were some who received what he said, and they had become Christians. But you know what they were leaving behind? They were leaving behind the divisiveness, the lawsuit-happy culture, the immorality. Uh, At least they were supposed to leave it behind, but they were bringing it right into the church. It was a form of worship to them before they became Christians. And some were having a hard time leaving it behind. And you know what it's like, some of you. You come from a Catholic household, or you come from a Mormon household, or you come from a, um, a Muslim culture, or you come from something. And and when you're with your family or those friends, you want to be Christian. You don't want to be unnecessarily offensive. And sometimes it's tricky to know, do I, do I practice this? Do I go to church with them? Do I take the Lord's table with them? I mean, it's the Eucharist. Can I, can I do that? I mean, is that the same thing? I've had these questions come to me before. And you know what? It's hard. It's hard to know. Now, this one should have been intuitive. Sexual immorality perhaps should have been intuitive to them. But for whatever reason, some were falling back into the whole temple prostitute kind of worship. And so that's what Paul is addressing. When it came to Christ, when they came to Christ, after living in that godless pagan form of worship that was all about experiencing every form of fleshly pleasure, now they've come to Christ and they were learning, I hope, Paul was hoping, And some of them really needed to repent, and he was confronting them on it. But it was destroying the church. And not only that, but they were using Paul's theological teaching to justify it. Now, here's the thing, though. It wasn't just theological teaching that they were twisting to justify their sin. They also took Greek philosophical teaching. In fact, I would suggest that they started with Greek philosophy, the teachings of Plato and Aristotle and others, and, and then when they came into the church, they found Paul's teaching and kind of diced it up a little bit and married it to Platonic thought and came up, voila, with a justification for living immorally. And so Paul had something to, to teach them. He set out to smash not only their wrong theology, but their wrong philosophy by explaining something to them about the human body that was contrary to what they had been taught. 
Paul counteracts the philosophy, their view of the body, beginning with verse 13. And here's what verse 13 says. This is, a, this is an interesting and kind of confusing statement, but here, here we go. Verse 13, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will destroy both of them. Yet the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord is for the body. Now, this is an important statement, an important verse in the whole argument here, and so I need to explain it. But let me tell you what he's saying first. He's saying what you need to know, what you need to learn, is that your bodies belong to God. The body is the Lord. First of all, sexual sin is enslaving. Secondly, you need to know that your body is the Lord's. And the Lord loves your body. He created it for his glory. And so sexual sin is a bad idea for Christians, not only because it is enslaving, but because the human body belongs to the Lord. Now, apparently there was a common proverb in Greece that said, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. And they just had a way of, you know, working through these philosophical phrases to, to kind of attach them to things they never belonged to. And that's what they were doing with sexuality. They were saying, listen, the principle here from philosophy is the food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. In other words, you eat food, it goes to your stomach. God created the food. God created the stomach. I mean, the whole experience, as pleasurable as it is, is just a biological process. There is nothing moral or immoral about eating. And then they took that and said, and that applies to any experience of the body. And so even sexual immorality is not really an, a, 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 an issue of morality. We can't call it sexual immorality because it's really not a moral issue. I mean, we eat and we drink and we engage in physical intimacy. And they're on the same playing field. And Paul was saying, oh my word, you are a confused people. You don't understand how God views the body at all. The idea here is that both food and the stomach were created by God. And Paul is saying, that's true, they were, and they were created for each other. And they would argue that committing fornication then, or adultery, is nothing more than a biological issue. There's nothing theological or moral about it. But Paul counteracts that directly. And so look what he says. Food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food, but God will do away with both of them. Yet, the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord is for the body. Now, let me give you a little context on why they were even thinking like this. Part of Greek philosophy was this... um, this philosophical dualism in, in describing man. The philosophical anthropology went something like this. Spirit is good. Uh, matter is evil. And so when it comes to people, our spirit is good because it comes from God, but our bodies are evil. Our bodies are not going to do anything after we die. They'll, they'll feed daisies. Um, they'll, they'll rot and go away. 
There's nothing redeeming about the body. It's just here. We've got to put up with it. You don't like your body? It's okay. You're not going to have it for very long. The real you is spirit. And this was a big problem in that time. And I'll tell you why it became a really big problem. Not only because it was applied to sexual immorality where they were saying, listen, it's the spiritual that all, that's the only thing that matters. And what you do with the body doesn't matter because the body is just going to die and go into the ground and there's nothing to it. It's your spirit. And so if you're worshiping and you're living in a spiritually acceptable way, then God approves of your spirit, whoever it is that the God is that you worship. But your body doesn't matter. I mean, you can do whatever you want with your body and, and nobody should care. That's kind of what happens in our culture today. Spiritual things are good and physical things are evil. The fact is, they took that same teaching and applied it to Jesus. And they said, you know who Jesus was? Jesus was a spirit. And his body, that was just a container. We're not even sure he had one, but if he did, it was, it was just a container. It was just a vehicle. It was like the car he drove around in. You know, junk the car, get a new one. Doesn't matter. I mean, it doesn't matter what car you drive. Doesn't matter what body you have. It's going to it's going to rust, you're going to get rid of it. And Paul said, that's not true. In fact, one of the reasons he wrote the book of Colossians was to correct that teaching. Let me show you. Colossians 1:22. Speaking of Christ, Paul says, Christ has now reconciled you, listen, in his fleshly body through death. And then Colossians 2 verse 9, he says, For in him that is in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwelled, how? In bodily form. Paul was going out of his way to say, you have a wrong understanding of the body. You have the wrong, you have a, you have a misguided anthropology. You think that a human being is nothing but spirit contained in a body. And that is not biblical thinking. The reality is you are both spirit and body. And yes, there will come a time when you die and your spirit departs. But that is not the way God intended it. The only reason that happens is because of sin. And there will be a resurrection when you are restored to that body that God designed for you to live in forever. They had a low view of the human body. Paul, however, was teaching them about the sanctity of their human bodies. In fact, this is what he was saying in 1 Corinthians 15, and we don't have to look at that, but the whole chapter is about the resurrection. And he very clearly teaches, and especially in verses 42 through 44, he's saying that your body is not temporary. God made it to live forever. It will be resurrected. In fact, look at our passage here, 1 Corinthians 6, look at verse 14. Now, God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise, up, raise us up through his power. What's he talking about? He's talking about not just our spirit, but our bodies as well. We will have real bodies because that's who we are as persons. That's the way God designed it. And so you think your body lives apart from everyone else? You think your body, that you as a person, are separated from everything and everyone else in the universe? You are a free moral agent. You live on your own, and that is not true. Look at verses 15 and 16. 
Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take away the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Speaking of that old form of worship, Meganoita. May it never be. Do you not know, you who are so philosophically minded and so proud about your wisdom, do you not know that the one who joins himself to a prostitute is one in body with her, for he says the two shall become one flesh. But the one who joins himself with the Lord is one spirit with him. The thought of the Christian committing fornication or adultery was horrendous to the Apostle Paul. And here's why. The word members here, talking about members of your body, he's talking about limbs, hands, and feet. And he says, don't you realize that you, as a body and a soul, body and a spirit, you as a person who is part material and part immaterial, that you are a member of Christ's body? The thought of taking one of his limbs to a prostitute is horrendous. You haven't thought this through. You're living by false teaching, and it's destroying you, and it's destroying the church. And so he says in verse 18, flee immorality. Every other sin that a man commits is outside the body, but the immoral man sins against his own body. He's not saying that this is the worst sin. There's another place that talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, and we don't have time to talk about that. But what he is saying is, you're not taking this seriously enough. This is serious, serious business. You have a wrong view of Christian liberty. You have a wrong view of the human body. You have a wrong view of your relationship with Christ. And so Paul is saying sexual sin is enslaving. But your body belongs to the Lord, therefore flee immorality. But there's one more thing. It's not just that the Lord owns your body. The fact is, he says, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 9, 19, 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. And then verse 20, For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. So, how should we view our bodies as believers? And I mean this physical thing. How should I view my body as a believer? Here's a couple of things you should keep in mind. Number one, my body is the house of the Holy Spirit. Don't be deceived into thinking that the greatest house of worship is some significant grand marble building built by men somewhere. No, the greatest house of worship is your very own body where the Holy Spirit dwells. This was the mystery that Paul talked about in Colossians. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Your body is a holy place. It is a sacred place. It is something to be treasured. It is something to be cared for. It is something to be protected. And so, boys, young men, when you're spending time with that 
sweet girl that you like so much. You need to remember this. Her body is the house of the Holy Spirit. God lives in her, and you'd better be careful how you treat her. Secondly, my body does not belong to me. It is not only the house of the Holy Spirit, but it is owned now by someone else. Look at verse 19 again. Or do you not know that your holy that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. I mean, you are your own. Actually, you were Satan's. You could say you were your own when you were an unbeliever, but not anymore. You don't belong to you. The title deed to you, the title deed to Pastor Dan does not reside in Pastor Dan. I don't belong to me. I belong to another. There is a strong lordship component to salvation. He is Lord, not just gracious, loving Savior. And as we saw last week, the gospel has the authority to make demands upon our lives, and it has the capacity to create real and lasting change. But I need to remind myself, my body doesn't belong to me. You say, well, I look in the mirror, I don't like my body. It's okay, it's not yours. Don't criticize somebody else's body. Don't be deceived into thinking that since it's your body, you can do anything you want with it. If you're a Christian, that's just not true. Your body doesn't belong to you. And so, if you're a young lady and you're spending time with that special guy that you like to spend time with, that guy who is always wanting to touch you and perhaps is pressuring you to do something that, that you know is not going to be pleasing to the Lord. Um, don't for a minute think that you have the right to make that choice. It's not your choice to make. Because that body that he wants doesn't belong to you. It belongs to Christ. We're having a conversation one time with my girls we're actually trying to instruct my boys at the time, but we're doing it by giving instruction to the girls, hoping the boys were listening, and they were. And I said, listen, girls, uh, if a boy comes along and says, uh, I'd like to give you a gift, what would you say? And one of them said, I'd say, thank you. And I said, well, that would be very polite, but that's the wrong answer. You should say, you have to ask my daddy. And they went, <laughs> they thought that was neat. I said, okay. So what if a boy comes along and he says, can I hold your hand? What will you say? And one of them said, yuck, that's gross. <laughs> and I said, I'll accept that. <laughs> <laughs> no, you're to say, you'll have to ask my daddy. What if a boy comes along and says, would you be my girlfriend? And he looked at me and said, you'll have to ask my daddy. That's absolutely right but your daddy is not just me. Your daddy is the Lord. What are your intentions? My body is not mine. It is not mine to criticize. It is what it is by the grace of God. And I have a stewardship to maintain it and to keep it and to feed it rightly, not too much, but not to starve myself either. I'm to get appropriate sleep. That's true. And I'm to take care of it and, 
and, and, but not be overly consumed with taking care of it. Just know that the Lord considers it holy. My body is not my own. Third, my body was bought by God at great expense. Verse 20, for you have been bought with a price. Every commentator I've read on this said this. In the Greek, this is slave auction language. It's like that whole scene at the end of Hosea after his wayward wife left him and she's having children by this other man and he's providing for her secretly like God does for us and she's just the wayward wife and and even the other guy gets sick of her and sells her as a slave and even the, the slave owners get sick of her and they put her on the auction block and who shows up at the auction but her husband and he buys her and takes her back home. That's a picture of salvation. That's exactly what God intended it for it to be. Jesus died not only to redeem your soul, beloved, but to redeem your body as well. It's not that your body is something that God is stuck with because he saved your soul. No, no, no. From the very beginning, he intended that that we would exist as a being made of two parts. You are both spiritual and physical. You are soul and body. Now listen to this, Romans 8, verse 11, the great eight, Romans 8. But this is one of the verses in the great eight. It says this, um, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, and he does, then he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give your give life to your mortal body through his spirit who indwells you. God gave you that body and you're going to have it forever. Except when you get it back after the resurrection, it'll be perfect. It'll be perfect. We'll still recognize, I think every one of us will recognize one another, but we'll be looking so much better. I praise God for that. <laughs> and fourthly, my body was created to glorify God. My body was created to glorify God. Verse 20, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Beloved, the, the whole issue of the sanctity of the body has many implications. It has implications about tattooing and piercing. No, I don't have any tats. Um, about eating and drinking. Um, it has implications about how we dress. It has implications of our entertainment and pornography and other issues. But there's one thing that Paul wants to make clear, and it's this that Christ's claim upon the Christian is not simply upon your soul, but upon your body as well. Your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit. Therefore, flee sexual immorality and glorify God in your body. Amen? Let's pray. Well, Father, we thank you that your word even addresses nitty-gritty issues like this. I praise you for it, Lord. I praise you that there's no sin that you did not die for, that all is forgiven, 
and even the scars of past sin that we bear are a testimony of your grace in us. And so we praise you for them. We praise you, Father, for every time past sin humbles me and lays me bare before the cross because it causes me to see afresh and anew the glory of Jesus Christ. Thank you for taking away our shame. Thank you for taking away our guilt. Thank you for taking away our sin. And now, Father, help us to live in these bodies in a manner that is pleasing to you. And we pray it for your great glory and for our own great joy. In Jesus' name.